Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Soros-sponsored border invasion. You will not believe this information. Antonio Swad, congressional candidate for Texas CD32, joins me in studio. Arrested in Los Angeles of a, of a China connection to U.S. elections. I can't wait to tell you that story. Uh, Biden's war on America. White House censors an enemies list. It's a true story. And finally, the left's Katrina-fying of DeSantis is not working. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie George Addis. I talk about George Soros in the show quite often and because he is a billionaire, because he is very politically active, trying to reframe the world, reshape the world in his image, what he wants, which is destruction of capitalism, destruction of the Judeo-Christian basis for America. Really, he wants to empower this rising globalist movement to be really replaced individual sovereign states. I learned some things today I want to share with you that deal with George Soros and how much he's funding what happens at the border and how complicit the media is in this country in misleading America about what's really happening at the border. If you ask a lot of voters, especially, honestly, uh, liberal voters, you know, what the problem is at the border, they often will think, well, it's because there's so much poverty in South America and Central America, all over the world, and these people just want to come over here for a better life, and we need to be generous. That's the left-wing talking point, the left-wing view. George Soros funds an enormous number of organizations who not only encourage people to come to America, attempt to cross the southern border illegally, he provides legal aid and funding for people in an effort who are here illegally, an effort to become legal citizens. He funds is funding the lawsuit against Governor DeSantis in Florida, who merely shipped a few legal aliens up to Martha's Vineyard to give them a little taste of their own medicine. But I want to run through some of the things he actually does. And part of the reason I want to do this is it's not just because George Soros and his leftist organization have America in their crossfires, it's because the left that now runs this country, the Marxist left that now runs this country, are perfectly happy with everything George Soros is doing. These statements and this, by the way, everything I talk about in the show, I provide links for you to read the articles yourself. You can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org, and on the homepage, under shows, drop down, list of links, every article I talk about is listed there. And I really encourage you to do that. I am very careful in the show about speaking truth and accuracy with sources. So this was a, an actual report regarding an organization uh, with the acronym is FAIR, F-A-I-R, Federation of American Immigration Reform. And they have a press secretary named Ron Kovac. And he was explaining to the media that not only does George Soros fund all these things, 
but he does it in complicity and lockstep with the Biden administration. He is assisting the Biden administration in their efforts to essentially abandon America's southern border. And the abandonment of America's southern border is not just because we're really sympathetic to impoverished people. It is part of the globalist mindset that says, you know, eventually we're going to have the UN, we're going to have the World Economic Forum type people running everything. And here in America, we don't need to be such a strong, sovereign nation. The concept of America, the sovereignty of the American people, rooted in the ideas in the Constitution and Declaration, is the biggest boulder in the road to what the left is trying to do. So back to Mr. Soros, for example. He's had a hand in almost every move the Biden administration has done to topple our immigration system. He is assisting with his billions, securing visas for those already illegally in the country through misinterpreting or lying, but the other word, of Trump's voice initiative assisting those attempting to avoid deportations. He's also funding all sorts of organizations around the country that have all these happy-sounding names. And I do give credit to the left for the way they come up with names that sound so nice that you're thinking, oh, let me get out my checkbook. Let me write a check. This sounds really nice. One of them being in Virginia, the new Virginia majority. And you know, Virginia, it's a cool state, a lot of history in America. The new Virginia majority, funded directly by George Soros and his um, open source, um, open society foundation, uh, they got funded for the $100,000 and just the language they used describing this new Virginia majority. Build a block of conscious, consistent voters to advance a new politics that's democratic, sustainable, and just. I mean, you think, well, gee, who could be against that? This slew of organizations he is funding, he along with other organizations like the Ford Foundation, which spent over $100 million last year, $100 million last year in support of amnesty and mass immigration. And then you go on from there. I want to mention a few other ones. A Groundswell Fund, a wealthy organization that funds progressive causes, has given $100 million in donations since 2003. And by the way, before I lose track of this fact, some of these organizations actually have prominent Democrats, leaders in the Democrat Party in Washington on their boards. This is an attack on America, the abandonment of the border, the encouragement of illegal uh, immigration into America, the failure to enforce immigration laws. It's not sympathy. It is an attack on the sovereignty and the very idea of America. Another one, another group involved, Immigrant Legal Resource Center, um, actually has Nancy Pelosi uh, on the board um, and, and also whoever the chairman of the California Democrat Party is. All they're doing is encouraging naturalization among eligible immigrants, pushing them along the way to becoming citizens. I'm getting to this point to say you have to at some point recognize what's occurring at the southern border is an invasion. It is an invasion. And if you think about America being the land of opportunity, still is, because of the founding ideas we no longer strongly uphold, think of the number of people in the world who would come here if they could. If we had no immigration system, we just said, come on in. And by the way, the numbers, or which article it was in, the numbers are something like 3 million have entered America across the southern border in the time that Biden's, oh yeah, here we go, 3 million economic immigrants, alleged economic immigrants, have been allowed to cross the southern border uh, in the U.S. economy since Biden's inauguration. And I didn't know this, 2 million more flew in. They came in via U.S. airports. So we're talking about a massive uh, invasion of non-citizens in America uh, and around the world. If you estimate the number of people who'd like to come here, it's in the B 
billions, B billions. America cannot bring all those people in one last shot in those first five on the subject of immigration. You have to see it as a conscious attack on America. And you think, well, well at least in Washington, you know, we have the Republicans or the conservatives, they're kind of trying to, they're going to stand up. They don't like this at all. Well, you know what is true of some of them? It's true of some of them when they come home and give speeches, they say they're not into it. But it's a very interesting, interesting happened in this amazing primary happening in the state of Arizona. We've talked about this primary before. Uh, the Republican candidate, Blake Masters, uh, a very viable Senate candidate out of Arizona. And a guy, and by the way, you know, four states in America have border with Mexico. So we have, you know, Arizona being central to this issue, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. We have our border with Mexico. Arizona, maybe not quite as overrun as Texas's border, but it is, it is wide open, and you have the federal government not enforcing it. So I wonder what the reason would be that Blake Masters, clear shot at winning this, this election, this general election, Mitch McConnell... The Senate Minority Leader, one probably maybe the top Republican in Washington beside the RNC, pulled the money he controls for GOP elections away from this candidate, away from Blake Masters, Senate candidate in Arizona. And I'm telling you, many people in Washington, it's not really an R versus D issue. Many people in Washington benefit in a variety of ways that we've talked about before. I'm not going to jump into it now. Illegal immigration benefits them. They are just this, they, are, they aren't going to be openly globalist, openly World Economic Forum, but they're really darn close. McConnell being one of them. The whole notion of America being a unique, sovereign, extraordinary nation, the entire reason I do this show is to stand up and speak up for America. These people, such as Mitch McConnell, they're not helping anything. They're not helping a guy like Blake Masters. For, fortunately, Heritage Foundation, they're at their Heritage Action Super PAC stepped up and put in, I think, a million dollars or more again recently into this race in Arizona because the effort to retake the Senate, which is vital to stopping what is happening to our country, uh, depends on races like this that are close, that are winnable. There's no word out of McConnell. He thinks the Arizona race is not winnable. He's just not willing to fight. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. We have a guest joining us in the studio, which is always fun. We have Antonio Swa joining us, and he is running. You know, I do this show from the great state of Texas, and he is running for Congress in the district where I used to live. My husband and I recently moved out to the country. Like between my house and here, we see cows and cornfields. No kidding. We're out in the country. But we used to live in this district, and it is represented currently by a Democrat. Um, I'm not sure he really won, but he did. he's in that seat. So right now we have Antonio Swad running for Congress from Texas CD32. And I wanted to get to know him and introduce him to you. So, Antonio Swat, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I can tell uh, that I'm definitely in the right room <laughs> here in that <laughs> oh, first good. five minutes. You're not running for the door? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Well, let me just start with, before we get to why you would ever run for Congress, because, you know, I, <clears throat> running for Congress, running for any office, you get so much um, attack, so much ridicule. Yes. And a lot of people say, you know, I don't really want to be involved. I'll just start write checks, but you're standing up to run. But before we ask you why, tell us a little bit about your business or a political, whatever your background is. Well, you know, I tell people I'm not a politician and I don't say that with any shame. I say that 
proudly. And I think this is a time when we don't need any more politicians. I come from a business background. The restaurant industry made my home for nearly five decades. I'm the founder of a couple of chains, a chicken wing chain known as Wingstop. Uh, well, you're the founder of Wingstop? Yes. Okay, I don't even really like meat that much, and I know Wingstop. Uh, okay. yeah, all right, well, there you go. Okay. Yes, that uh, that's one of mine, and also a pizza chain focused on servicing the Hispanic community called Pizza Patron. In addition to that, several one-off concepts over the years. But my background is 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 the is business in, in general business, and uh, you know it doesn't really matter whether it's restaurants or retail. There are things that are common to both, and I think I bring a skill set that would be helpful in trying to get government back on track. Well, I love that. I will say, you know, people say they come from business. Sometimes uh, in, in both parties, they have kind of really high-level business that most people can't understand that we're yeah. even talking about. But, you know, restaurants and, and in communities in America, these are, <clears throat> these are often traditional small businesses that, that uh, communities thrive on. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was uh, involved in developing franchising programs and why that's important, coming back to realizing the American dream. Many people have their own version of that dream. And by supporting them in a, in a franchise of either of those concepts, uh, it's changed a lot of lives. You know, they did it without government money. They did it by hard work and, uh, and work in a system that we developed that, that worked well for them. I love that. I love actually. You know, it is a really good point for someone who's uh, maybe in a lower income community, and if you don't have sufficient education to get many jobs that require it, you can you can run a franchise and yeah. you can be a business owner, and then you end up being self sufficient. I love that. That's that's the story, right? Yeah, that's absolutely the story. And uh, and I know I know what it feels like to be responsible for other people, meeting the payroll signing the front of a check and, uh, and knowing that there are people that depend on you. You know, you need to run the company in a sound way. So when they go to the bank, that check's good and they can feed their family. I embrace that responsibility. And I think we need people in Washington that kind of have some experience knowing what that's like. I like your point about signing the side of the check that you're giving, you're paying somebody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so this, uh, you were hinting out a little bit, but why'd you decide to run for Congress? I have kids. I have children. Uh, I'm worried about the direction of the country, just like you and many people are. People express it in different ways. Uh, I say it out loud. You know, I look at all the indicators. I look at uh, the push for uh, globalization is one thing that particularly bothers me. Debt, uh, the debt that the country's in that we're passing on to our kids. Uh, that's a problem. And if you trace back these situations, everything that we think is going wrong in the United States, it, you can trace it back to a decision point. At one point, a person or a group of people made the wrong choice. They made the wrong decision. What their motivation was is, you know, maybe not known. But um, I think I have something to contribute uh, because of the the greatness of the of the country and hard work and uh, and other factors. I was able to. Uh, work and have my family security assured and but I'm not finished I think now it's my time to serve not the government but serve the people that reside in uh, Congressional 32. Well I would tell you that is something um, I recently emceed an event where there's a congressional candidate was speaking and that was one of the things that people in the audience were saying is I want to feel like when you this candidate go to Washington <clears throat> you're not there to make sure the party leadership is happy and you're not there to make sure that, you know, your personal agenda, you're there to serve the people who you, who, who sent you there. And I think that 
servant leadership, whatever term you use for it, is a really, it's, it's like a lost concept in America. It is, but you know what? I've been in the hospitality business pretty much my entire working life, and it's funny, but there are some parallels. You're putting the needs of others first, and that's, and that's, and that's kind of what you do. You know, somebody gave me this definition of a, a, a politician, and, I, and it really is right. A politician is somebody that before they make any decision, they think first of how that's going to impact their career. Then their decision, is, their, their decision is kind of colored in that direction. Uh, well, that's the wrong, the wrong way to process a decision if you're representing other people that elected you, sent you to Washington to be their representative. And the thing about the District 32, uh, it's, it's got a lot of wonderful people. It's got some amazing companies in it. The current congressman knows nothing about, never visited any of these companies. Uh, but I can relate to everybody in that district. There's poor people. I've been, I've been poor. Uh, there's people that uh, made it and... Uh, and I've been that person too. I know what it's like to run a company. I talk with those CEOs, those people running those businesses. I know what they feel like when it comes time to meet their payroll. I know that, and I think that I would be an excellent representative of, the, of all the people in 32. You know, part of the, uh, they all say politics is personal. When you're going around, I assume you're knocking on doors, which is the, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Doors. I'm going to imagine, I mean, I know people, or should I say it this way, I know the left thinks that there's going to be a big, they think one source of support is the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs, the, the abortion issue, which right. I don't want to get into right now. I mean, I don't mind talking about it, but I think what's going to drive people is pocketbook, what, inflation, taxes, and the sense that you, you aren't sure you feel financially stable, and you want someone going to Washington, and, and you want the government to stop spending money they don't have, I think that one. I think the other one's crime. And even though crime is a local issue, the attitude out of Washington regarding law and order is all sympathy for the victim and, in my view, and, and failure to get um, to be firm about law and order, to make communities safe. And right here in Dallas County, where your district is, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, is it all in Dallas County? See? Not all of it. It's in three counties, but mostly Dallas County. Yeah. I, I think people have seen that here. They're starting to see crime go up and inflation taking away more of their, what would have been their savings. And they want someone to just mm -hmm. pay attention to the impact those policies on their lives. Yeah. I'm assuming you hear things like this, knocking on doors. I, I completely agree. I think one of the primary functions of, of government is to protect its people. And that could be in, in national defense, that's one thing, but protect the people at the local level as well. And I do want to circle back to something you said in, in your beginning. You talked a little bit about the border. Uh, I think border security and crime kind of ride in the same car. Uh, yes. I made a trip last month down to the border, the Del Rio sector, mm -hmm. uh, Eagle Pass, Del Rio. I think everybody in Congress needs to make that trip, and then they need to be able to look their constituents in the eye and say, I'm, st I'm good with an open border. I'm okay not doing anything about it. If they could do that, okay. I don't think they've even made the trip or are that interested. I went there two days, two nights. Water's Edge witnessed with my own eyes the entire operation, how it works. It's very efficient, I'll point out. And as a businessman, when I look at something that I was looking at, you know, I'd say, wow, this, this cost a lot of money. I wonder where this money comes from. And then when I got back to Dallas, I kind of ran, ran that down and have a complete understanding of these things called NGOs, the non-government organizations. But I can assure you, that within 45 minutes of 150 people coming across the river, 
They were on buses on their way to the processing center. Most of them stay 24 to 48 hours before they're redistributed throughout the United States. It's and these are the efficient. ones they catch. Yeah, yeah. Then they have an expression down there called gotaways. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like, the ones that got away. Yeah, and those numbers, I know uh, Border Patrol gives wide <clears throat> range of, of estimates, but, you know, it's, it's at least as many got away than got caught, and maybe more got away. Because there are, I mean, the, the cameras they sometimes have from helicopters where they're just pouring, we don't have sufficient resources. Right. We choose not to put sufficient resources in place. Well, we have, we have people there, but instead of protecting the border, the Border Patrol has been relegated to more an administrative position now with clipboards processing these people as they come through. There's a joke down there that I heard, who's on Uber duty today? That means who's driving the van to, to take these folks uh, to the processing center. When it's a large enough group, they send these big white unmarked buses to do it. But it's sad. I mean, most of the people I talk to want to tell you how much longer they have before they can retire and get out of the job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sad. It's sad. It, it is sad, and it's unnecessary. It is a, it is a deliberately created crisis. It doesn't have to be this way. It's it totally on purpose, and whether you agree with it or not, at least understand how it works. The majority of the funding for these NGOs come in the form of grants, from our own federal government, which is our own tax dollars, are being used to fuel this, this process. Just to put some numbers in context, I learned this just the other day. Uh, my grandparents were Ellis Island immigrants on both sides of the family. Ellis Island was operational for about 32 years. In the entire 32 years, they processed more or less 12 million people. The correct way, the, the, you know, understood uh, who they were, where they came from, 12 million people in 32 years. We've had two and a half million people since January. So January to October, we've had approximately, and it's hard to land on an exact number, but I think you get the point. We've had two and a half million people in 10 months. Ellis Island was open for 32 years. And you know something else I think that uh, needs to be talked about more and more is the left gets some leverage out of defending the open border by saying, well, you know, the people who are complaining about it, it's kind of, you know, they really just, they don't like people don't look like them, they're haters, or they, they yeah. make it into a racial issue. And, you know, other countries now, we've, um, I don't know if you follow these things internationally, but other countries are having elections where the conservatives were saying, we need actually to have a border and a refugee policy we all agree on. Italy had that, Sweden had that, and now Brazil is getting to run off on that. The concept of, of a secure border, it's about making sure you know who is in the country mm -hmm. and then making sure the decision when they come in the country, they want to become Americans. Whatever race, skin color, creed, national origin, they need to want to embrace what America is and not and, and, and become part of it, part of our, and that's part of what is lost when the discussion seems to go down the path of, oh, you just don't, you know, you're just against immigrants. I want America to survive. And these kind of numbers are talking about America as a as a sovereign nation doesn't survive. Well, I'm not against immigrants, but I and I will agree that our immigration system could use some reform. We currently have about three million available visas. I think that's numbers too small for a country of 350 million people. That could be expanded, but we also could use a system uh, like other countries have a point system. 
for example, if you want to come over and you have a criminal record, that's a hard no. We don't need any more of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have enough of them here. We, yeah, yeah, we don't need to import that. The thing that I noticed about the folks coming over, you'd think you'd come over, you just broke the law, there's a little bit of shame associated with that, none. I saw none of that, almost a sense of entitlement. Uh, I had one guy say through a translator, Joe Biden invited me. That's why. Oh, yeah. Well, there are great stories about that. People yeah. in the southern border, they knew about changes in federal law, and they said, oh, yeah, now we're going to be able to come. Okay, well, yes. on, the, we're on the border, totally. I couldn't agree more. So the yeah. House, in the Constitution, the House is given the power of the purse. There's a lot of conversation yes. about, well, if you're in Congress, you know, that's one way. So can you imagine ways, if you're in Congress or when you're in Congress, can you imagine ways the House should rein in spending? Like, how do we get that started to rein in some of the spending that we're seeing? Well, I think uh, I would like to see any spending accompanied by w where the money's going to come from out of the budget for something that already exists. You know, it's been back to the Bill Clinton administration when the last time we had a balanced budget. It was one time and it didn't last very long. And at the time, we had a tremendous um, amount of debt at that time, which has ballooned into an, a crazy astronomical rate. But we can't continue to, at the end of the year, have that bottom number be in brackets. In business, that's, right. a, that's a loss. <laughs> in, in, in government, that's a deficit that we need to make up the difference. So uh, I think it can be done. It's gonna take, it's gonna take a, a discipline. It's gonna take people that go to government with some, with some backbone, know that we're gonna break, a, we're gonna crack a few eggs, but we're gonna, everybody's at the end of the day is gonna get a nice little omelet out of this. But responsible government is, is what we need. And you know, as you know, the majority of spending bills begin in the House of Representatives. That's the kind of thing that'll come across my desk. And I know that uh, we get enough people up there with the discipline necessary, we can change kind of the thinking on where this money comes from, and every spending has to be accompanied by a budgetary cut somewhere else. That sounds good. Are there agencies that should be drastically cut in their budgets? I mean, your overall sense of the federal agencies that have too much? I think all the agencies uh, can be cut. And there's two ways to go about it, or maybe more than two. It's not just uh, the, the, the hard dollar number. It's ratcheting up the efficiency of some of these people. A lot of money, a lot of our tax dollars are wasted because of just uh, lazy government and not efficient enough. And it all stems from the fact that, uh, you know, I believe federal government's just too large to begin with. At, at the my vision, you know, if this was my Christmas morning package, government would be like a management company. And their goal is to deliver the maximum customer experience, citizen experience, if you will, for the least amount of money. And that takes, that takes uh, astute management, and it takes people making decisions, not with a political perspective, but what the perspective of what works. What's the most I can deliver for the, taking the least amount of tax dollars to do it? I love the efficiency thing. Um, I've forgotten the name of the senator who used to do this annual report, and he would highlight extremely absurd spending yeah. things. You know, researching the life cycle of a caterpillar. I mean, that was. I mean, the it was Golden like Fleece the, Awards. Right? Yes, 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 Golden Fleece Awards. Yes. And the thing is, it was funny every year. You read it, oh my gosh, we spend money yeah. on that, but it didn't yeah. seem to move the needle at all. I mean, in terms of we getting people to stop spending, I just this is a concern about Washington. There are too many people who just keep on spending, they can kind of chortle and, and, you know, smirk about silly spending things, 
but the <clears throat> the kind of the, the uh, culture doesn't change. No. I noticed you you talk about term limits. What's your view on that? Well, everybody talks about it. You know, everybody, myself, I signed the pledge. I'm not the only candidate that does. But it seems to be after they get to Washington, all of a sudden there's a kind of a selective amnesia about term limits. And those are the guys that end up spending, you know, 20 years in Washington. The system, it's not designed to be that. The job I'm seeking is representative. You have to come from the community, in best case scenario. I'm running against a guy that doesn't even live there anymore, moved his family to Washington because he wants to be a forever Washington guy. Oh, I'm getting a lot about him. You know, okay. World Economic Forum guy. We can talk about that as well. Uh, But you need to go do your one or two terms, go back to the community for which sent you there, get your job back or your business or whatever. Send somebody else with the most recent perspective of what the what the experience is like from that district. I heard someone mention the idea that in addition to representatives, we really ought to have term limits for people employed by the federal government. Why do you get to have a career as a, <clears throat> and I don't know what it would be, Department of Labor or you know, State Department, there are all sorts of agencies where the longer you stay, the more inclined you are to think you've got permanent employment, and you're designed, to, you're inclined to think, I don't have to really be efficient. I mean, I get a paycheck almost no matter what I do. So, I mean, I, I kind of like that concept, too. Uh, quickly, for our radio listeners, you're going to go off to a break at the bottom of the hour for three minutes. Do not go away. We'll be right here when you <clears> come back. If you miss any portion of the show, you can watch this on our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can actually watch the show live at our website, americacanwetalk.org. And you can go there and watch past shows, past interviews. Everything we do is there. Uh, love having you do that. A little later in the show, I'm going to tell you about our summit coming up, which you can also buy tickets for the summit on the website. But you, when you go back, uh, go in the bottom of the hour, come right back because we'll be right here. Okay, so term limits, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and then I would got to say on the... Um, I think what happens in Washington, and I, I've, I've heard representative congressmen say this, is you know, once it takes you a while to learn your way around up there. And, you know, an incumbent guy was talking about a, a primary challenger saying, oh, my gosh, it'll take them, you know, six months to find the men's room and I'll be solving problems. Yeah. I mean, you really think it, I mean, because I, I really do think it is exactly what you're saying. It's meant to be citizen government. And I think it's vital right. to the way we set up our country. Would you really want to elect somebody that it takes six months to find a men's room? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think anyone running would actually have that problem. Yeah, yeah no, right. I, I think we. I know, I know, I'm ready to go to work on the first day. You know, I I have principles. I believe I understand what the people that send me there are are looking for in representation. Um, in, I, I don't I don't believe that. I I think. Uh, and I think a freshman uh, congressman can be effective also. I mean, I've heard that one, too. Well, yeah, you, you got to be there a couple terms to get a Well, that's the good buddy system, and that's part of the problem. You know, I don't need to make buddies or, or friends in Washington. I have a wonderful family here, yeah. you know. But what I need to do is go and do the job, be effective, and represent the people that hired me. Last question. So right now, in, in uh, my view of the world, we have – a Democrat party in Washington that holds all the levers of power. They have mm-hmm. the White House and they barely have the Senate and the House. Yeah. Um, and they are not <clears throat> the track I would say they're on, given the policies that come out of that party, 
is, is not supportive of the American people or the identity of America. And so to me, I, I want to encourage people as they consider your race is even if you've always voted Democrat, and I'll tell you, true story, I voted Democrat all the way through college and law school. Yes, I did. Because I thought it was about being nice. And then I got smart and realized, no, it's actually a very dangerous path the Democrats are on even then years ago and is now. So to my sense, when you vote for someone like your incumbent, uh, Colin Allred, he's a current CD32 guy, and when you send someone to Washington, you as a voter can say, oh, well, he seems so nice. I think that'd be fine. But it's important to recognize when people go to Washington, they tend to vote however party leadership tells them to, especially on the Democrat side. There have been books written about people saying, right. I didn't know when I got there. I didn't have any right to speak or think for myself. I had to do. So what's the status on Colin Allred? Is he voting with the Democrat agenda? 100% of the time voted with Nancy Pelosi. He's rated as one of the most li liberal members of Congress. And in some ratings, even AOC is slightly more conservative than the guy I'm running against. And that kind of gives you a sense. However, when he comes in his campaigns, <laughs> campaigns is I'm a guy for everybody and I know how to work both sides of the aisle. It, it, it's an illusion. None of that's true. He has two full Congresses of a voting record that I would like for him to sit down with me, but he won't, and let me ask him to defend this pathetic vote, this. Vo voting record and tell me how any of this stuff benefits the constituents in 32. The truth is that none of it does. Uh, and if, you know, if, if giving away free money and, and unearned money to people to encourage them to stay home longer, destroy their work ethic. Maybe if that's the objective, or well, certainly he's he meeting that. He gets a prize. That. He gets a prize for doing that. He, he doesn't. He, he, get, he yeah. gets a prize. Yeah, he gets sort of gets an award. I mean, it's it, 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 what an upside down, what an upside down world. You know, it's it, it's it's crazy. And I think uh, I'm a completely different. Uh, candidate uh, from a number of reasons. We have completely different visions of what government should be, the size of government, how government should serve the people. The difference between he and I is he works for the government and I'll work for the people that send me there. I love that. Antonio Swad, again, for our listeners, running for Congress in Texas, CD32. His website is Swad, S-W-A-D, SwadForCongress.com. Uh, one last closing point you want to make, a pitch why you're the one to, to uh, go. Because I, I mean, I, I actually think you should, you, all you should have to say is, I'm Republican. That's why you should vote for me. <laughs> because we can't have a Democrat agenda in this country. But go well, ahead. Well, you know what? I, I'm running in a district that is a majority Democrat district. And I understand math. It comes from business. We need all of us and some of them and I would say to I would say to everybody in the district just try it the great thing about the system you can fire me in two years if you don't think I'm meeting your needs or representing you the way you want to be represented turn me out there'll be another guy in two years but if you see what a little bit of taste of what real responsible government looks like you might change your mind, Re regardless of what political party you you say you identify with vote for the candidate and in this case Vote for me. Give me a shot. Antonio Swad, thank you so much for coming <laughs> in today. Thank you. Great to meet you. Great to see you. My pleasure. Okay, folks, I want to hit a story. This is a little bit of follow-up, a story that I've talked with you about before. Um, I called it, um, I, I referred to arrest in Los Angeles and the China connection to U.S. elections. I want to remind you that we covered...
fairly recently, there was a big event that was put on by Catherine Engelbrecht, who founded True the Vote, and she, along with Greg Phillips, who were the two people who gathered data and they gave it to, to Dinesh D'Souza, where that was put in the film 2,000 Mules. Among the things they've been talking about, both Catherine Engelbrecht and uh, Greg Phillips, uh, was this idea uh, that they, what they came across in trying to uncover what happens in America's elections, they came across a company, an election software company called Conic, K-O-N-N-E-C-H. It's called Conic, um, and they alleged in their diving into information, it's, it's really, I think, Greg Phillips is a really um, very skilled, uh, long-experienced cybersecurity uh I don't know, detective isn't the right word, forensic guy, really, really bright guy. He got into all of this. And so Conic, K-O-N-N-E-C-H, Conic is an election software company in Michigan. And part of what Greg Phillips uncovered in the pit, and since that time he's been talking about more, is that in Conic, they, Gregory Phillips and Catherine Engelbert came up with, was an understanding that there was information regarding the names, addresses, identity, uh, everything personal about your family, about election workers in America. And it was being, which should not really be, doesn't need to be in any server uh, related to the elections. And certainly the extent, uh, the extent of family, home address, uh, everything about the families. And so when they first were talking about this, they, Greg Phillips said in his, the original pit day, said that he had, they'd taken this information to the FBI and said, we discovered that Conic has this information and it is being stored in servers in China. American election workers' data, personal information, is being stored in servers in Wuhan, China. And so when Greg Phillips took it to the FBI and said, you know, this doesn't seem like a really good idea, the FBI's answer, uh, after initially seeming to be interested, uh, turned on Gregory Phillips and basically accused him of hacking. How do you know what's over there? How do you know what's in their computers? You must have hacked him. I mean, the most absurd answer for an agency allegedly dedicated to election integrity, to following the law, to having law and order in America, that was the answer of the FBI. So the New York Times, uh, always reliable left-wing mouthpiece, um, published a story just this week on Monday mocking, again, Gregory Phillips and Catherine Engelbrecht, and they use the term, a small group of election deniers published a conspiracy theory that a small American election software company, Conic, has secretized the Chinese Communist Party and had given the Chinese government backdoor access to personal data of, of about 2 million poll workers in the United States. So New York Times mocking Catherine Engelbrecht, Greg Phillips, the whole story about Connick saying, and, and just obviously trying to paint uh, True the Vote, Catherine Engelbrecht's group and Gregory Phillips as election deniers and lunatic conspiracy theorists. So New York Times runs this story mocking what they came up with. The next day, as it turns out, the Los Angeles District Attorney, uh, George Gaskin, G-A-S-C-O-N, Los Angeles District Attorney, announced the arrest, the arrest of the CEO of Conic, named Eugene, last name U-Y-U. So New York Times mock, ridicule these stupid people trying to talk about conspiracy theories and Conic. Tuesday, the Los Angeles DA, no friend at all of conservatives, of President Trump, of True the Vote, they arrested the uh, CEO of Conic 
for violating essentially what, what Connick had done. They had indeed gathered data. They provide all this election software information, by the way, for countries all over the uh, states all over the country. And what they were arrested for, what he was arrested for was because their storage of election worker information in um, L.A., in Los Angeles, the California election um, was indeed that data was being held in Chinese uh, servers, Chi the country of Chinese, China, Chinese servers in Wuhan. And to be really clear, these are not, in, in, in many ways, there's not really such a thing in China as a private company. There are laws in China that no matter what they say they are, every single entity, including what we call private companies, actually must comply in every way with the Chinese Communist Party's request for information. So indeed, Connick was doing exactly what Gregory Phillips said they were doing. So, so this guy gets arrested, Eugene Yu, um, and actually part of what the mockery and attack was on um, Gregory Phillips and Catherine Engelbrecht was the idea they had made reference to um, the uh, Chinese origin um, of this company and the ties of this company to China and part of what the New York Times did because they, like any leftist in America and probably in the world, cannot resist tying every single issue there is to somehow finding, oh, it's probably just racism. So here's what New York Times had to say. Um, Defendants, true the vote, blah, 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 as founder and president Catherine Engelbrecht and board member Greg Phillips have intentionally, by the way, I'm reading from Connick, this company in Michigan that provides election software all over America, Connick sued Gregory Phillips and Catherine Engelbrecht for saying that they had ties to China. I mean, they just, this is the audacity, this is dominion. Whose, serve, whose election machines have been proven within the Colorado system to have been vulnerable to being hacked and having been hacked, and yet they go on the offensive. This is what this is what trapped tyrant leftists do. They go on the offensive. So you had uh, this in this lawsuit against uh, filed by Connick against Gregory Phillips and Catherine Engelbrecht. Um, they said. They said they have been relentlessly attacked, intentionally, repeatedly, relentlessly, uh, with defendants' unique brand of racism and xenophobia by their completely basis, baseless claims that Connick, its founder, and employees are Chinese operatives who are spearheading a red Chinese communist um, um, op against the United States of America. Well, as it turns out, number one, the servers in China which the government has 100% access to, and the information given to them by Connick. Number two, this Eugene Yu, who was arrested, is a Chinese national, was born in China, came here, I think I figured out, he was 15 years old or so. So he's born in China, he's, a, he's very connected to China, and very connected to all these other entities in America that are part of helping the Chinese Communist Party in their endless quest to control the world. And yet you, and so I just, I want to, I want to tell the story, first of all, because some people are saying that the arrest of this guy, Eugene Yu, may just be the first domino. It may just be that we're going to finally start to see how much and how severely the Chinese actually invaded America's elections and how much information the Chinese government has about American election workers, about American elections, because of the conduct of companies like Connick. And maybe we're really going to start to see an opening up of what really what uh, actually happened uh, in our elections in 2020 and beyond. But, you know, it's an interesting thing when the New York Times, when you're the New York Times, you can run a story like they do and mock and ridicule and find racism under every rock. And when you're proven 100% wrong, 
And the very next day, your other left-wing ally, the Los Angeles DA, has to arrest this guy, you. And by the way, you might be thinking, well, if this DA is such a leftist, why did he arrest you? I'm going to guess. I don't know why Eugene Yu got arrested, but I'm going to guess when the information became so public that Eugene Yu does actually, his company does actually gather election data from election workers, about election workers, and shares it with the Chinese Communist Party that he, the L.A. district attorney, could not let it go. He couldn't just pretend and turn his head the other way and say, never mind about that. So much more to follow in this story. But it is very interesting when the left gets um, caught lying as really, I mean, I would call it lying what the New York Times is doing. They simply don't want to have anything to do with um, acknowledging the uh, entire leftist cabal in America don't want to even tiptoe into the arena of discussing the potential for massively fraudulent elections in America. But they just may be starting down that path finally. Okay. Uh, I want I want to hit this up. Biden's war in America. I do not say these words lightly. And I want you to really uh, tell you why I'm saying them. So we can run through a whole host of things that the Biden administration has done, which is inconsistent with the needs, the desires of the American people. And we talked about some of them we, earlier today, talking about not only do we not enforce the border. And by the way, when that gentleman who was here a moment ago, Antonio Swad, talked about being on that uh, trip with congressmen down to the uh, down to the Texas border. Um, I was invited to go on that trip and could not for, uh, for a variety of reasons, could not go. But I, I talked with another member of Congress, a soon to be member of Congress, who said it's not even accurate to call the border, you know, not enforced or not fully enforced. He this other person was saying there is no border. There's some people down there doing some things and shuffling some people around. But the entire border is open. People pile across it all day long every day. Can't catch them. So this is so this is under the Biden administration's watch. As you had under President Trump, a very focused effort to build the wall, to create the Remain in Mexico policy, many other policies that simply said we Americans are going to have a border. This is what happened under the Trump administration. What's happening under Biden is the abandonment of the border. So there's that issue was just truly uh, breathtaking. We had, I am getting around to telling you the latest thing that constitutes an element of Biden's war against America. It is a war against America. It's nothing less. But another one that's a good example, this wasn't Biden in the beginning, but it was the leftist cabal that now controls Washington, including the agencies that are still run by leftists, even during the time of President Trump's presidency. You had the Russia collusion hoax. You had, you know, I mean, in the dozens, if not hundreds of federal FBI agents working for the FBI and investigating and concluding that, I mean, unless they were asleep at the wheel, there's nothing to investigate here. And, but what happened instead, of course, is the investigation went on for two and a half years, three and a half years, two and a half, whatever it was, way too long to come up with, as Mueller finally had to admit to the American public, absolutely nothing. So we had their, you know, just, just endless attack on the American people through the, um, through the Russia collusion hoax. We have, we have the left just, you know, that was happening to our military. We have the military falling into, you know, pronoun uh, battles and sensitivity trainings and transgender um, advocacy. We just have issue after issue after issue in which the Biden administration is taking actions that are directly contrary to the interests of the American people. Radical spending, encouraging people not to work by perpetuating programs where they're paid to not work, and, and they've become a society where they're not actively, um, actively 
engaged in the American economy. We had the entire corruption involved in the Ukraine. Uh, we had the Congress try to impeach Trump for pointing out in the Ukraine what Biden had done on live television or in a live presentation. You have the, this is the, the leftist march against America, the Biden effort to take down America, what happened in Afghanistan, the abandonment of our, of our own uh, commitments uh, in Afghanistan. We have the Biden administration saying through the Department of Homeland Security, issuing, issuing two different bulletins, one right after Biden was inaugurated, where the DHS said, you know, you just might be a terrorist if you challenge, if you challenge the legitimacy of the 2020 election. You can't even talk about it. And a more recent bulletin in February of this year, in which the DHS said, in a bulletin to America, you may be a domestic terrorist if you dare to challenge, dare to challenge the government's version of truth, the government's you know, mandate of what you must believe regarding election fraud in 2020 and before and after, or if you challenge the government's ministry of truth announcement about what you must re believe regarding COVID and the vaccines and other treatments that are effective. This is the United States government telling the American people, you're not allowed to say things we don't agree with. And we might call you a terrorist. You know, we've been talking at, at great length over and over about the government's treatment of defendants in the January 6th episode in Washington. The January 6th episode where literally hundreds of Americans, we're getting close to a thousand, are having door, you know, the FBI show up at the front doors, some having their doors broken down, prosecutors sent to jail over peacefully assembling in Washington, as, as we know they did on January 6th. Most all of them, virtually all of them, not all of them, but most of them were peaceful protesters who have had to, had to suffer at the hands of the FBI selective investigation, the DOJ selective prosecution. Only the enemies of the state get investigated. Only the enemies of the state get prosecuted. That's the government that we have under Joe Biden. And now I'll turn to something else. It's an amazing story I want to share with you, which is coming out of a guy named Robbie Starbuck. He ran for U.S. Congress um, in Tennessee's House District 5. And he is releasing this story. And I really want you to think about this. There's a category. I call this segment Biden's War in America, White House Censors and Enemies List. Robbie Starbuck is, and again, you can read these stories at our website. Understand they are, you can read them yourself. So the Biden regime, and it is not correct to call them the Biden administration. That assumes legitimacy. That assumes fair elections. That assumes the representation of the people because they chose you. This is the Biden regime inflicted on America, even though he didn't win the election, has now paid up to $12 million, $12 million to censor political opponents on an enemies list and to interfere in elections. So Robbie Starbuck is talking about this, or this coordinated effort. It's called the Election Integrity Partnership. Again, the left is brilliant at coming up with names. Who could be against the Election Integrity Partnership? That sounds so great. So that, organ that entity, that group is called Election Integrity Partnership, EIP, 
and enemies of the Biden administration are on the list. And so they include Charlie Kirk, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald J. Trump Jr., Jack Posobiec, I'm sure others who uh, challenge the legitimacy of the Biden administration. So what they're talking about here is you have four entities there that the federal government is, through the Biden administration, sending money to these organizations, the Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, Atlanta Council's DFR Lab, and analytics from Graphica, the analytics firm Graphica. So you have these four entities, and what's been happening, what Robbie Starbuck is revealing, is that federal government money is being doled out to these groups to essentially silence political opponents of the Joe Biden administration. More particularly, what they do, they give grants to study. So the National Science Foundation awarded Stanford and University of Washington projects $3 million in August of last year to study ways to apply collaborative rapid response research to mitigate online disinformation. In plain English, if people say things that the left doesn't want you to say, and it could be on border policy, climate change, election security, tax policy, any issue there is, if they don't like what you're saying, this is your tax dollars at work being spent, paid to organizations who are researching ways to shut you up. And continuing Graphica, uh, which was this uh, Graphica I mentioned was the uh, analytics firm. Uh, they've been getting federal grants up to $3 million from the Department of Defense for unspecified research on, cro on cross-platform detection to counter malign influence. Translation, they are supposed to find ways to shut down people that they don't like and they don't agree with. And another $2 million followed in the fall of 2021 for research on co-citation network mapping to connect these sources who dare to say things that we don't like. We had the Atlantic Council um, got $4.7 million in grants in 2021. All but one came from the State Department. Uh, and the, these are, again, they, it goes on and on and on. EIP is acting like George Orwell's 1984 Ministry of Truth. They're taking federal money and funneling it to groups that find ways to shut you up. And I want to show you something else very, very interesting and related to this. This consortium, this EIP consortium, um, is comprised of these four organizations and three other liberal groups, three leftist groups. Again, your tax dollars being spent by the Biden administration to pay people to shut you up if they're saying things that the Biden administration doesn't like. Three liberal groups, the Democratic National Committee, the Common Cause and the NAACP also were empowered, like these federal agencies, to file tickets seeking censorship of content. So leftists who don't like what conservatives think and say can submit a ticket. And through this EIP, Ministry of Truth, funded by your tax dollars by the Biden administration, you'll find yourself at the unhappy receiving end of the silencing of your views. People, I keep saying this is Biden's, it's not just Biden's war against America. This is the left's war against America, the left's war against freedom, the left's war against everything that America is supposed to stand for. They're, they are against borders, against border security. They're against freedom of speech. They're against fair elections. They're against everything that America is supposed to be. And now your tax dollars being used to shut you down.
I, before I get to my one last topic today, um, I want to quickly, um, oh, and by the way, um, hold on, hold on, hold on here. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I have one little thing to show you in just a moment. This is a tweet from the New York Times. Um, before I get to that, though, I want to quickly tell you about my summit. If you're listening and you don't have your ticket for my summit, I cannot encourage you strong enough to get it. We're having our third annual Women for Freedom Summit right here in Dallas. It is on Saturday, October 15th. It's going to be a wonderful summit. The speakers are extraordinary. These are top-notch thought leaders in America, people who stand up and speak up for America every day. Uh, we have Gordon Chang on China. Uh, we have Frank Gaffney on national security. We have Sidney Powell talking about the rule of law. We have Tina Peters talking about election integrity. We have Christy Hutcherson talking about the border. Raymond Abraham talking about Islam in America and, the, and jihad coming our way. I mean, and we have Laura Logan, Laura Logan, the Selection Code film producer, coming to talk about what she's been doing. And we have Dr. Simone Gold, who is a national rock star hero, talking about her um, efforts on the uh, when she established the America's Frontline Doctors and then became one of the January 6th political prisoners. It's a stellar, stellar summit. You will love it. Go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can buy tickets there. You can buy sponsorships there. You might want to think about a sponsorship because our Friday evening exclusive event is Laura Logan. Excuse me. Friday evening is Dr. Gold. Saturday evening exclusive event, Laura Logan. These are going to be great events. Love, love, love to have you here in Dallas. We have lots of people flying in from out of town. You can stay right here at the Hilton where, where this summit is going to be held. Uh, we'd love to have you. And again, go to americacanwetalk.org. Get your tickets. You don't want to miss it. Okay, last thing I'm going to hit today. Uh, this is just a brief little hint of this story because it will uh, continue to unfold. So I talked about Hurricane Ian in Florida. And of course it was you know, horrific. It was a, as I think Governor DeSantis' expression was, it's an every 500-year event. It was a huge, huge, um, you know, hurricane and, and massive damage and the billions of dollars and, and lives lost and homes destroyed. It was, it, was a, it was a big hurricane. So again, I'll remind you, we played this on the show, um, I don't know when it was, last week. There is not a surge in the number, the frequency, or the strength of hurricanes happening in the world. There is not. There's a left pouncing on issues like this, horrible events like this, and trying to claim it's part of a pattern. You see, this is what's happening here because now we have, you know, we have bigger hurricanes because of climate change. Climate change is not creating any increase in numbers, frequency, or size of hurricanes. But that's not what I want to talk about today. So we have, you know, the left is trying to find a reason. You might recall when we had uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, there was an effort we tried to use the um, Hurricane Katrina to attack and vilify uh, George Bush as president, saying he didn't do enough, didn't do enough soon enough, he should have done this, he should not. I mean, it was just the left looks as they opportunistically always look every chance they get to find some basis to shut down and mock and ridicule and blame and just obliterate, if they can, anyone on the right side of the aisle. This is what the left does. They are always opportunistically looking for some reason, some basis to turn the American people in, uh, as into, and against their political enemies, against their political opponents. So George Bush got 
unduly, unjustifiably smeared by the left over Katrina. Well, they're trying the same thing with Ron DeSantis in Florida over Hurricane Ian. I'm just going to tell you, I think it's not working too well. There was a quick clip. I'm going to just quickly have this uh, clip go up, if we could. Um, this the was a, a tweet. No, no, not this one. I'm so sorry. I, I, it is the tweet. Sorry about that. The tweet. Okay, this is the New York Times. They put a tweet out saying, Governor Ron DeSantis and other Florida Republicans rejected major climate laws. Now they're seeking storm aid. So they're trying to connect the fact that there were some climate laws that the lunatic alarmist climate left wanted passed and Florida didn't pass them. And now they're trying to make it sound like it's hypocritical for Governor DeSantis to want federal aid to deal with hurricanes. This reminds me of one of the great examples when uh, this was actually Ann Coulter when she used to be saying Ann Coulter had a line in a column one time where she said she was trying to make the point about how people can attach two unrelated things and make it seem causal. She had this point where someone put in, could write, you know, President Ronald Reagan was shot. President Ronald Reagan died. If you put those two sentences together, it sounds like he was shot and that's why he died. Well, what the New York Times is trying to do in that uh, little clip I just showed you, that tweet that I just showed you, they're, try they're trying to say that somehow the uh, because... Governor DeSantis didn't pass these lunatic, you know, just just uh, extremely tyrannical climate ideas that the left always has, that he shouldn't be asking for aid for the hurricane damage in Florida. Number one, nothing the left is pushing in terms of climate legislation will in any way, will in any way impact or reduce the number of hurricanes. They know that. I hope you know that, but the left is hoping, and the New York Times in particular, is hoping that stupid people will actually think that Hurricane Ian caused so much damage because we had, did, Governor DeSantis wouldn't do these climate change things that they want them to do. That is what they're hoping. It is, and, and my larger point, and i got to wrap up because we're out of time here, but I do want to make the point, the left is going to try to, I use the word Katrinify, they're going to try to make Governor DeSantis into a bad guy and somehow responsible for every home that was destroyed, business destroyed, life lost, people injured. They're going to try because that's what the left always does. They fight to destroy people. It's what they do. It's how they roll. So now they've had this horrible hurricane, uh, Ian, in Florida, and they've had massive damage, and Governor DeSantis is doing the responsible thing and applying for federal aid, which is why we have FEMA for actual emergencies like this. And there's nothing hypocritical about doing that. Governor DeSantis did not cause the hurricane. He didn't cause the damage to be any worse. He didn't cause the hurricane to land where it did. Nothing Governor DeSantis did had any impact on the hurricane's damage in Florida. And people of the New York Times... I want to say no better. They know that they shouldn't be blaming Governor DeSantis for the hurricane or saying that because he wouldn't pass their climate alarmism things that somehow you know, he shouldn't be allowed to apply for federal aid. But actually, the really sad and crazy thing, it's entirely possible that the New York Times writers are so delusional, so delusional, so confused, so misled, so brainwashed, so marinated in left-wing lunacy they actually somehow think that Governor DeSantis caused the hurricane 
or, or the damage was worse because of some climate law he could have passed at some point in his governorship. It's a lunatic idea, but it does tell you how desperate the left is to try to attack, to malign and ridicule and tear down Governor DeSantis because they see him as the next strong Republican leader moving forward in this country um, after President Trump to become a future leader and rally the conservative troops. So they are on a warpath to destroy him, but I don't think it's going to work. I think the American people are smarter than the New York Times think they are. Thinks they are. I think the American people can figure out that Governor DeSantis didn't cause a hurricane. He didn't cause the damage. That would be Mother Nature, and he's doing a fantastic job in organizing the aid, getting all the aid he can to help all the people as quickly as he can. I close this show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today at the very beginning. We were talking about a Soros-sponsored border invasion. I truly found this information amazing. Facts on the ground exist at the southern border. Drug dealers, human traffickers, sex traffickers, and terrorists are coming into the U.S. because they are being encouraged and facilitated by the Soros-funded left. Because the Biden cabal intends this as a means to take down America. Because the American media is complicit in this takedown of America. And because the D.C. Uniparty leaders, including Mitch McConnell, don't care to protect the border. The left's bogus narrative must be understood and rejected by all Americans. America's prosperity is, is an accident of history. It must be shown, it must show compassion and openness to the poor and persecuted by letting in whoever wants to come to America. That's the left bogus narrative, and it is outrageous. It will destroy America. The reality, America's prosperity is a product of right ideas of human freedom under God. All American citizens and those who wish to be citizens must understand, protect, and defend this unique and powerful heritage. Biden's open border destroys it. Arrest in L.A. for the China connection to U.S. elections. True the vote, Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips, major election fraud development. True the vote previously revealed at the Pitt, the conference in August, information regarding Conic, this company in Michigan. It's a Michigan-based company with ties to China and the CCP. True the Vote data pointed to Connick having personal data on thousands of U.S. election workers and indicated Connick was storing U.S. election worker data on servers in China, to which necessarily the CCP has access. Connick apparently has contracts with multiple U.S. jurisdictions to manage elections. Storage of data in China apparently violates such contracts, considered theft of data. L.A. County in California has a contract with Connick, and they arrested Connick CEO Eugene Yu yesterday. L.A. County DA is a radical leftist, appears reluctantly compelled to take action against Connick. Connick's links to China and U.S. elections may just be opening the Pandora's box. Keep an eye on this story. And in Biden's war in America, at White House censors enemies list, Robbie Starbuck, former MAGA candidate for Congress in Tennessee, major news, Starbuck uncovered evidence that Biden's DHS formed the Intection, excuse me, Election Integrity Partnership DHS spent $12 million in U.S. taxpayer dollars to censor critics of the Biden cabal. Censored Charlie Kirk, Jack Posobiec, Donald Trump Jr., and Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is not a normal disagreement with political opponents. It's not the private action of a political party or campaign. 
This is the direct action with your tax dollars of the Biden administration that constitutes outright election interference. Americans must wake up to the criminality of the Biden cabal. Americans ought to vote out every office holder who does not vehemently oppose the Biden cabal. And the less Katrina-fying of DeSantis left us kneecap George Bush by shaming FEMA's performance after Hurricane Katrina. Left-wing media is determined to make Hurricane Ian's devastation into DeSantis's fault. Left-wing media is failing badly in this effort because DeSantis is leading as he should. He's on the scene engaged. He's not holed up in the governor's office. He's not ducking any question. He's focused on delivering help and hope in the face of a natural disaster now of his own making. No amount of anti-DeSantis media spin can change what Floridians see with their own eyes. Ron DeSantis is no fool as to the left's tactics, and he's not afraid of them. This gaslighting is not working and will not work. A lesson more MAGA candidates must learn. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America Can We Talk. Truth about America. Can